we looked, didn't we, in our first session at the, the northern power block, uh, the king of the north, um, and we saw the confederacy of nations and uh, quite how they might build. We're, we're, we're seeing, aren't we, this conflict between Turkey and Russia and Europe, uh, and we understand that the king of the north is going to have to drop into Constantinople, uh, that the image of Nebuchadnezzar may stand on its feet, that the western side in Rome, the eastern side in Constantinople will stand up, and that's the image that's going to be destroyed by the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the final king of the south, but before that we see that the king of the south is the power block to the south of the land of Israel. So let's just open our Bibles again in Ezekiel 38. You might already have a marker in there. And just be reminded, I've put it there for us on the screen, that the northern power block is Russia, Europe, confederate with Iran, and Kush, or Ethiopia, the Horn of Africa, and Libya uh, in North Africa. So you've got that northern alliance, and they are uh, not in the same group as nations as those in the south, the, the, and, and the king of the north and the king of the south from Daniel 11 gives us this idea of north-south, who are, in verse 13 of Ezekiel 38, Sheba, Dedan, and the merchants of Tarshish. And we understand that we're not going to go into why we think these nations are that. Um, that Sheba and Dedan are the Gulf nations that we put there on the screen in the bottom right-hand corner. And, of course, Tarshish, we've done a lot of work on this, haven't we, in the last few years, as we've seen Britain come out of Europe. Tarshish is uh, Britain. And, and by the way, it's for that reason that uh, Chris Dawkins was so confident that Britain would come out of Europe, because she isn't with Goma. She's not with the European powers that become confederate with Russia. So, Brother Thomas, you know, in the 1860s, that's why he was so confident to say that Tarshish, Britain, couldn't be one of the ten toes, uh, he writes. Um, and, and other, you know, many brilliant Bible students, I mean, Isaac Newton, for one, uh, when he wrote, he, he thought that Britain was one of the ten toes, and he came up with all sorts of brilliant um, uh, understanding of the scripture that was very much aligned with Christadelphians, but he didn't get that right. Brother Thomas, though, understood from Ezekiel 38 that Tarshish had to be separate from Europe which is why we expected Britain to come out of Europe. So we've got this southern alliance, this southern power block that we're now going to turn our attention to, to look at. And we've seen, in the most amazing way, really, in the last few months, this power block beginning to come together. New report assesses Israel's warming ties with Arab Gulf states. Are Garabal Gulf Arab states aligning toward Israel? Netanyahu, just uh, less than a year ago, in seeing uh, Boris Johnson become the new Prime Minister of, Is of Britain, rather, um, he says it's a great day for Great Britain and the UK-Israel friendship. And, and Johnson has publicly said he sees himself as a Zionist. He sees himself very much in support of Israel. And in amongst all of this, we're trying to get the big picture in our studies this afternoon. We're seeing the impacts of Brexit, of Britain coming out of Europe. And part of that is in trade relations. 
And in fact, you know, we're going to hear nothing else, are we, in the next couple of weeks than to do with Britain's trading relations. And, you know, personally, I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibilities that Britain can trade with Europe, so long as she's not part of Europe. Uh, Tarshish, we don't read of as anything other than a great trading power who isn't European. So it, it's perfectly reasonable that Britain um, may end up having some sort of trade relationship with the EU. She may not. Uh, we're we're going to have to wait and see, aren't we? But what's absolutely clear is that Britain's clearly looking for other trading partnerships. That's why she doesn't want to be tied to the European Union rules. And, and a major trading power that's beginning to um, want to work alongside Britain is the Gulf countries. So look, this article is from the beginning of this year, the impact of Brexit on relations between the UK and Gulf nations. Will Brexit, they're, they're asking this year, boost the UK and the GCC trade relations, the, 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 the Gulf states trade relations? The impact of Brexit on relations between the UK and Gulf countries. This article from February of this year says, to ensure its energy security and influence in the Gulf region, the United Kingdom will likely deepen its relations with these nations in a post-Brexit world. Well, this is what we would expect to see. Ezekiel 38 tells us that Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish will be those who ask the question of the king of the north, of Gog, are you come to take a spoil? when Go drops down into Israel. Lord of the Gulf, why Britain? Aim must restore its dominance in the Gulf. And so what we're seeing, like never before, just in the last few months, is all of the nations identified in Ezekiel 38, in Daniel 11, aligning together. We're watching Europe come closer to the Russian uh, Confederacy. No longer does uh, Europe feel it can trust Britain in the West and, of course, beyond that, America. Rather, it's turning its attentions towards Russia. Uh, and in contrast, Britain is wanting to, to develop its relations, particularly with the young lions um, of the Commonwealth and the Gulf states of Sheba and Dedan. And that's what we're seeing on the map. And that's exactly what Bible students have expected to see for many, many years. Now, this detail is important. This is, was written in 1861 by Brother Thomas. And he said that Tarshish, Sheba and Sheba, so Britain and the Gulf nations, are subservient to the angelic mission for the protection and regeneration of Israel. So don't forget that when he's writing this, he's writing nearly 100 years before Israel actually came back to the land. Now, we're a generation on from that. We're 70 years on from it. But he's writing in the 1860s when he's telling the world or anyone that will listen to him that Israel are going to go back to the land, as Bible prophecy says. But he says that these nations will be subservient to the angelic mission. So they may not necessarily know it, but the angels will work with Tarshish, with Britain and the Gulf states for the protection and regeneration of Israel, which is why Britain was so key to uh, pushing the Ottoman out of Jerusalem. That's what we'd expected to see, which we saw, didn't we, in 1917, during the events of the First World War, which we touched on in our last talk. But we're now starting to see these nations 
working to protect Israel. Israel and the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, signed a deal with the White House, didn't they, of historic proportions, because these neighbours, these Gulf neighbours, suddenly started uh, just this last autumn to want to normalise their ties with Israel and to, to be part of the protection of Israel, to create peace agreements with them. Conservative MPs, this is from September this year, expressed their support for further peace deals between Israel and Arab countries. The UK Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, said, I think the UAE deal with Israel is very positive. We're looking to and will certainly be encouraging. Indeed, we have already started to encourage others to follow suit. Uh, obviously, Trump, and you know, from what we're seeing at the moment, it seems to be the, some of the last things that he's been able to do in office and it, it, it quite possibly seems, doesn't it, that the angels have finished using him for the purpose he was brought into the White House for, which was central to um, what he's done in Israel, in Jerusalem, in moving the American embassy there, in organizing these peace deals uh, between these Gulf nations and Israel. His time may be done, uh, but the angels have used him like no present before, it would seem, to further the purpose of God. Um, we'll, we'll see, won't we, in the next um, few weeks, um, uh, quite what will happen uh, in the White House. But just to comment on it, that, you know, we might wonder what is taking place. Many of us would have expected that Donald Trump would stay in there because of his policies towards Israel. And, and yet, perhaps we're going to see, if Biden does come in, that he's a Catholic, that he might be more um, supportive of uh, Europe and, and of uniting Europe, which is exactly what we would expect to see, not necessarily America part of it, but someone that would unite Europe uh, because Europe does need to be united. Um, in addition, we might see him sort of pulling away on the global stage in terms of uh, America's role in the Middle East. Who knows? We're just going to have to watch and wait and see. But Needless to say, you can't imagine that the Northern Alliance would happily sweep down into Israel with perhaps Trump in charge. And you can't imagine Trump just quietly asking, are you come to take a spoil? Whereas perhaps Biden may uh, not have the same um, desire to uh, control what's happening within Israel and within uh, the Gulf nations. Um, and, and, and perhaps um, as a result that they'll be weakened and the king of the north will have the confidence to sweep down into the land. All of this, these things we don't know. All we know is that it's God who rules the kings of men. He gives it to whosoever he will. Who, you know, how many of us would have presumed that Trump would have even got into the White House in the first place? And the things that we have witnessed um, take place They've actually taken place, including, of course, these historic peace agreements between Israel and the Arab nations. And so on the uh, US, uh, the White House foreign policy website, we've seen that they're promoting peace and security. But that's the language, isn't it, of First Thessalonians chapter 5. Should we just quickly go there? First Thessalonians chapter 5. We're told of the language that will be used before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Verse 1, of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write to you. You yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes a thief in the night. When they will say, peace and safety, or peace and security, then some destruction will come upon them, as travail upon a womb with child, and they'll not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness. So, we're living in the days when this language is being used. Just have a look at this video. So it's just amazing, isn't it, seeing them talk of this peace that um, we would have expected to see at the time of the end between Sheba and Dedan, the Gulf nations, um, and Israel. Let's just hear what Netanyahu had to say. And I can tell you that we have a strong relationship throughout the Middle East. The president intimated how many countries are waiting to join this circle of peace. You know, Israel doesn't feel isolated at all. It's enjoying the greatest diplomatic triumph of its history. I think the people who feel isolated are the tyrants of Tehran because of the pressure that the president has applied on them. It's extraordinary, isn't it, when he says Israel doesn't feel isolated at all. Now, what does 1 Thessalonians 5 say? When they will say peace and security or peace and safety. Now, keep a marker there, but go to Ezekiel 38. What is the land going to be like when the king of the north drops into it? We're told, aren't we? Ezekiel 38, the king of the north, verse 9, will come like a storm. But he's going to come, verse 11, to the land of unwalled villages. I'll go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely. They don't think that they're isolated at all. They think they're at peace. All of them dwelling without walls and without bars. Why peace between Israel and the Gulf states matter? So what Brother Thomas had to say? He now us Israel. After this, their expectation will not be deceived. For before Gog invades their land, you will say, I'll go to the land of unwalled villages. I'll go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls, having neither bars nor gates. So Brother Thomas writes, any person acquainted with the present, of course, don't forget he's writing the 1840s. 
So over 170 years ago, any person acquainted with the present insecure condition of Palestine under the Ottoman dominion must be satisfied from the testimony that some other power friendly to Israel must have become paramount over the land. So he says that Gog is going to come down to the land of unwalled villages. And for that to happen, he's saying, a power, not the Ottoman, someone who's friendly to Israel will have some protection over the land. So he goes on to say, Ezekiel informs us that Gog's earthly adversaries, so the adversaries of the Russian powers, that will occupy the countries of Sheba, Dedan, and Tarshish, that when the autocrat invades the Holy Land, when Russia comes down into Israel for the purpose of spoiling the Jews, the lion power of these countries assumes a threatening attitude, dares him to execute his... Are you come to take a spoil? Have you gathered thy company to take a prey? Thus it speaks to Gog as much as to say, thou shalt not spoil Israel and subdue their country if we can help it. So it, what he's saying is, is that not in the soft way that I suggested earlier, perhaps in a more aggressive way, Tarshish, Sheba and Dedan would challenge Russia to say, are you come to take a spoil when you come down to the land? Now, the, the protector, of course, Tarshish, Sheba and Dedan, look what we've seen this week, Boris Johnson tell us about what he's going to do. So in a time when the economy's failing, when countries across the world are struggling like mad, he says we need to up our spending on defence. Let's listen to what he's got to say. Extending British influence requires a once-in-a-generation modernisation of our armed forces. And now is the right time to press ahead because emerging technologies visible on the horizon will make the returns from defence investment infinitely greater. We're going to use our extra defence spending to restore Britain's position as the foremost naval power in Europe, taking forward our plans for eight Type 26 and five Type 31 frigates and support ships to supply our carriers. We're going to develop the next generation of warships, including the multi-role research vessels and Type 32 frigates. And this will spur a renaissance of British shipbuilding across the UK. That's amazing, because Isaiah tells us that the ships of Tarshish will be used to bring the Jews back to the land. Now, you may say, well, they're already back in the land, but actually, that's only part of the Jews. You know that there are millions of Jews all over the world that at the time of the end, when the Lord Jesus Christ has returned and they're beginning to recognize their Messiah and mourn for him, so Jews from all over the world are going to want to flood back to Israel. And we're told in Isaiah 60, surely the isles shall wait for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring thy sons from far, their silver and their gold with them, under the name of the Lord thy God, to the Holy One of Israel, because he's glorified thee. And the sons of strangers shall build up thy walls. Their kings will minister to thee. And so we begin in Isaiah 60 there, it goes on into 61, to see the rebuilding of the land. Uh, and Tarshish is going to be key to bringing people with her navy, with her ships, back to the Holy Land. Now, isn't that amazing? Just this week, we've seen Boris Johnson tell the world 
that for all the challenges this pandemic, for all the challenges in the economy at the moment, Britain is going to up her spending on her naval power, which she says is going to be, bring a renaissance to shipbuilding in Britain. We're going to be the key player in Europe, he says, for our navy uh, and for our ships. What an amazing thing just this week we're seeing. And so we're starting to see um, the, the headline writers tell us a brand new Middle East. The normalization of ties between Israel and the Gulf Arab states presents an opportunity for re-engagement in talks, the special coordinator tells the Security Council. The US delegate declared, instead of just walk, talking about peace month after month, the United States led the way through action and we've achieved tangible results. The United Kingdom's delegate urged other countries across the Middle East to follow the example of the UAE and Bahrain, representing a profound shift, they say, in the region. In the Arab states' embrace, Israelis see a reshaped Middle East. Arab normalization with Israel? Who's next, they're asking? To the UN, the Israeli Prime Minister says there's no doubt that more Arab countries will soon join the circle of peace. Let's just hear what he had to say to the UN at the end of September. Morning, hosted by President Trump, Israel signed historic agreements with the United Arab Emirates and the Kingdom of Bahrain. This was the first peace treaty between Israel and an Arab country in over a quarter of a century. And it was the first time peace agreements between Israel and two Arab countries were signed on the same day. These new agreements will bring our peoples the blessings of peace and the enormous benefits that come with more trade, more investment, more commerce, transportation, tourism, increased cooperation in so many areas. I also have no doubt that more Arab and Muslim countries will be joining the circle of peace soon, very soon. Amazing, isn't it? Uh, this is our time. We're the ones that are being given these signs to watch, to witness, that we understand that the prophetic word is coming together on an absolutely extraordinary scale. The writing is on the wall, they say, for the Saudi-Israel peace. Saudi Arabia adopts soft normalization with Israel. In fact, a, a Saudi royal in October criticized the Palestinians for accusing Gulf states of betrayal. And he's basically saying to them, listen, you guys need to get in line. You've got to um, recognize uh, Israel. And, and, and he's saying to the Palestinians, you've got to stop standing on your own. They add to speculation about whether Saudi Arabia could at some point consider recognizing Israel. Signs the Saudis are edging towards a historic peace deal. Israel and the UAE peace deal, big for trade in the Middle East. It's the trading partners, isn't it, of Tarshish, the young lions, the Gulf states, that's such a significant sign of the times. And sure enough, in the last couple of weeks, uh, what's the date today? The 21st, so that was this week. The Palestinians restored their ties with Israel. Of course, what they're doing is they're seizing on the fact that they think that Trump, of course, isn't going to come back into power. And they want, before Biden comes into power, to look um, to sort of reset um, the, the relationship there. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because it just adds to the picture of the land of unwalled villages. In addition, we're seeing negotiations between Israel and Lebanon at the end of last month. Just have a look at this. The fact that these 
peace negotiations between Israel and Lebanon are even taking place in the wake of the Abraham Accords and this warming ties between Israel and certain Arab nations seems significant in itself. Break down for us your thoughts. Yeah, it is, it is really quite significant. And it's uh, like the Abraham Accords, the work of very long and serious diplomacy by the United States, by Jared Kushner. And it's not a full-fledged opening of relations, mutual recognition, uh, like with uh, the UAE uh, and other uh, Gulf states. So it may seem like, uh, what's the big deal? But uh, on the other hand, relations with Lebanon have uh, previously been much worse. Lebanon has fought and has been part of every war against Israel since 1948. Uh, they are at war with Israel, and they've never even recognized the existence of Israel. So uh, the UAE, for example, always had warm behind-the-scenes relations with Israel. Uh, so uh, a rising tide lifts all boats. So the UAE, which already had good relations, the new spirit of the U.S. administration turned that into full recognition. And Lebanon, which is in a state of war, is now at least in formal negotiations. And when you say exactly that, we see this as a formal open discussion about negotiations in itself. What does it mean specifically for Hezbollah, given its role within Lebanon right now, and of course, its view on Israel? Yeah, I think uh, this, is, this tends to uh, be probably against Hezbollah's wishes, uh, and it's uh, significantly successful in that Hezbollah largely controls the government of Lebanon, but this shows it doesn't completely control it, uh, and we can see that they've already been very frustrated by this uh, development. Uh, and it tends to uh, show, you know, that perhaps their weakening influence in the wake of the catastrophic explosion uh, that they were responsible for in the port of Beirut. And the situation would seemingly be more complicated by the fact that, of course, Lebanon is an ally to Iran. How is Tehran responding to all these developments right now? So we can tell by Hezbollah's reaction, because uh, Hezbollah is Iran. Uh, and Hezbollah is very displeased by these negotiations. Uh, obviously, this is an attempt to try to uh, tamp down the influence of Hezbollah, at least on Lebanese foreign policy. Because Hezbollah does, says there's no such thing as Israel. There's a Zionist entity. And if they're negotiating a border between Lebanon and Israel, that must mean there is an Israel. Uh, and that must be very frustrating for Iran. And of course, the signing of the Abraham Accords, a huge development here, of course, in the Middle East, and specifically a joyous time for most in Israel to see that. But much was made then and even since then, both by Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu, saying more countries are going to follow in the footsteps of the UAE and of Bahrain. It's just extraordinary, isn't it? This is the bit from the BBC. Lebanon and Israel hold talks on disputed sea border despite state of war. And what we're watching is these nations signing up to the Abraham Accords. And the document um, that they signed there is on the screen. And you can see that central to the heart of that document are the words of 1 Thessalonians 5. When they shall say peace and safety or peace and security just look at the penultimate paragraph if you can see it on the screen there we pursue a vision of peace security and prosperity in the middle east and around the world but for me and you it's altogether more exciting isn't it you know most people when they hear of the abraham accords they've got no idea of the promises god made to abraham as christadelphians all of us know the promises God, to God made to Abraham. So when the U.S. administration is using the Abraham Accords, 
the likes of Jared Kushner, I'm sure, as a Jew, he understands why he's calling it the Abraham Accords. Of course, Abraham was the father of many nations. And he wants to bring those nations together to, 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 to a point of peace. But most individuals in the world just think, you know, they might as well be called the Jeffrey Accords, right? Or the Trump Accords. These are called the Abraham Accords. And for the, you and I, we should be waking up. Can you imagine what Abraham would be thinking? Seeing his name being used now as one of the final signs, surely, of the prophetic word in bringing these nations to a point where they can say they're at peace and the security where Israel feel that they're not isolated, that they can drop the walls. They're not worried because their neighbours seem to want peace. Of course, the original Abraham Accord, the word accord simply means a covenant or a promise. The original promises to Abraham were that in his seed, all nations could be blessed if they shared the faith of Abraham. Now, of course, Abraham was told, wasn't he, to come outside of his tent, to look up at the sky and to see if he could count the stars. And he was told that that's what his seed would be. I mean, it's just amazing, isn't it, that today there's the Abraham Accords, a testament to that, that all these Middle Eastern nations are the children of Abraham. And he believed God. And because he believed what God said to him, what the angel said, it was counted to him for righteousness. The Lord Jesus Christ said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And so, young people, we challenge ourselves. Have we got the faith of Abraham? Are we looking? Can you imagine if Abraham could see the signs that we could see today? He was asked to step outside of his tent to look up at the stars and to believe that one day his seed would be like that. And he believed God. You and I are seeing the most incredible signs of the times. Israel is back in the land. The king of the north is sitting in the king of the north territory. Europe is talking to the king of the north. Turkey is antagonizing those nations so that they'll drop down into Constantinople. Britain has come out of Europe. Tarshish is separate and she's talking with Sheba and Dedan and the Gulf nations and the Commonwealth nations. Those nations are making peace with Israel. That Israel might confidently feel that they're dwelling in a land of peace and security. In a land of unwalled villages. That the king of the north might be ready to sweep through Turkey into the land. We live in these times, if Abraham could see what we could see, he'd probably feel he didn't even need faith. It was so obvious. You and I have been given these signs because our day has so many distractions. We still need faith to hold on. But my question to you is, are you rejoicing to see that day? The nations are being prepared. Psalm 72 tells us that when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, the kings of Tarshish and the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba, they'll offer gifts. 
They'll be amongst the first nations of the world to recognize the Lord Jesus Christ. They'll bow before him. Eventually, all nations will serve him. And me and you, though, prepare. Because as Christadelphians who know these things, we will be called to judgment. We'll be called to Sinai, to the very territory where the King of the South, now the Lord Jesus Christ, will be prepared. We're going to be called there. And we're going to have to give an answer. And when the Lord Jesus looks at us, he is not expecting that we haven't made mistakes, that we haven't messed up, that we haven't occasionally got things horribly wrong in our lives. He's expecting that we've got faith. Will there be faith in the earth when the Lord returns? If the Lord returns tomorrow, will he see in you and me individuals that have got faith in these things? You remember from Galatians chapter 3 that if we're baptized into the saving name of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we become Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promises, the original Abraham Accords. And so we've got to challenge ourselves to make sure that we are aligned to the thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we've got the faith to hold on to the truth that as we see these signs around us, we don't just watch them and then carry on with our lives. We watch them and we use them as uh, energizers in our lives that we might be prepared and ready to be with the final king of the south. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 14 tells us that Yahweh will be seen over them. His arrows will go forth as the lightning. The Lord God shall blow the trumpet and shall go with whirlwinds of the south. In Habakkuk chapter 3, we read that God came from Teman. The word Teman in the Hebrew means the south. And the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. His brightness was the light. He had horns, or, or it means rays of light coming out of his hand. And there was the hiding of his power. So the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come, Deuteronomy 33 tells us, from Sinai, from Seir, from the south. He'll shine forth from Mount Paran. He came with ten thousands of saints from his right hand, went a fiery door for them. Young people, brethren and sisters, do you want to be there with the ten thousands of saints as part of the king of the south? When we go up to destroy the king of the north, when we go to save the tents of Judah, if you want to be there, then today, keep watching and use the signs of the times to build your faith. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns, what he expects in you and I is faith. Where does faith come from? It comes from hearing the word of God. So let's make certain that we keep reading this word and aligning our lives, that we follow it and that we're prepared and ready for the coming of the King.
I'd like you to open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11, where we read, don't we, of the king of the north and the king of the south. And Daniel 11 is one of the scriptures, sort of massive chapters, isn't it? You know, 45 verses, and it's tough going. Um, and we don't mean to go through it. But what we do want to understand is that when we get to verse 40, we move to the time of the end. And I'll show you shortly how it's entirely reasonable that we recognize this is our own time. And what we see there is two power blocks, as it were, one in the north and one in the south, one to the north of the land of Israel and one to the south of the land of Israel. And whoever the king is that occupies that territory is the king of the north. And whoever the king is that occupies the ter territory to the south of the land is the king of the south. So we also understand that these um, uh, individuals, the king of the north particularly, correlates with the um, uh, king described as Gog of the land of Magog in Ezekiel chapter 38. I've put on the screen there, if we're making notes, we might want to take a photograph of that or make a couple of notes there to see that as Christadelphians, most of us recognize that Daniel 11 and Ezekiel 38 correlate together. The, the, the language you can see is the same. We're talking about the last days. We're talking about a king from the north who's going to come like a storm, or Daniel 11 describes as a whirlwind, and will come into the land of Israel. So Daniel 11 and Ezekiel 38 are parallel chapters. They're both critical, and we'll use them both in our study this afternoon. Having just briefly seen uh, what we've seen in Daniel 11. I'd like you to keep a marker there, if you would, and come to Ezekiel 38. Just looking on the screen, I can see that most of you actually on the screen will know this well, um, but, but I'm, I sent an age demographic of, you know, some who might be 13, 14, and I thought it would be wrong of us just to skip over the fact that we all know that, that, that Gogu, the land of Magog is Russia, without giving a little bit of evidence for why we are confident in that. Ezekiel 38 tells us, doesn't it, that Gog of the land of Magog is the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Well, where is Magog? And we understand from first century historians, the likes of Josephus, that the Magogites were identified with the Scythians. Now look on the screen there, you can see the Scythian territory. And the Scythian territory was marked out by eight rivers. So just look on the screen there, and you can see a map drawn by Herodotus not long after the time of Ezekiel. Amazing, really, isn't it? Without Google Earth to come up with a map like that. I want you to notice a couple of things. One, that Europa stretches right across Europe um, and into modern Russia. Uh, but also that the Scythian territory, which is beneath the zero and the P of the word Europa, has got eight rivers there, and it sits directly above the Black Sea. So hopefully you can see that clearly. Um, in fact, Herodotus even managed to capture something of the peninsula, which we know of as the Crimea, which just sticks out from north to south into the Black Sea. Um, and of course, we know, don't we, that Russia, um, only the last few years, sits in that territory. All right. So Gog of the land of Magog, we understand Gog is the individual who sits in this Magogite territory. He's also the chief prince or the prince of 
if we read it as a as a proper noun, which we, we, we can do in the Hebrew, the Prince of Rosh. There's our, our word Ro- Russia, Meshach, and Tubal. So j- just a little bit there more on Magog um, uh, for us to see that it's not Christadelphians in the last 100, 150, 160 years or so that are inventing this. Rather, this is what scholars have believed for many, many years. Okay, so go to the land of Magog, Russia. Here, here she is on the map today. This is the king of the north. So when we read of the king of the north, this is who we're talking about. We're talking about the, the individual. At the moment, it's Putin, who uh, is the president of Russia. And in Ezekiel 38, which is where we are, we see that Russia will be confederate with, look, verse 5, Persia, which, of course, is modern-day Iran. So she'll be confederate with, with Iran, with Ethiopia. Now, you'll see that I've put on the screen, not Ethiopia, when you look at the, the title or the label at the bottom of the map, I've put Kush. Many of you... in different versions, won't have Ethiopia, you'll have Kush. And that's because we're talking about the Horn of African territory, right up from the likes of Eritrea, Sudan, and Ethiopia. Um, and in addition, Libya, which we can see there in North Africa. Now with them will be, so you've got this, uh, th- these nations that sort of surround the Middle East, if you like, of, of Russia, of Iran, of Kush, of Libya, But in addition, with them would be Goma. Now, that's a key, key player, because you can see that Goma is over there in northern France, Germany. And this is critical to our understanding of what we're looking at in the signs of the times today. So these nations are going to be confederate. And Ezekiel 38 tells us they're going to come into the land of Israel. But Ezekiel 38 also tells us of a, another group of nations, which we'll look at in our second talk this afternoon. Look at verse 13 of Ezekiel 38. So on the other side, as it were, and we're not suggesting that they're goodies or baddies, despite the fact that we live in Tarshish, we know, don't we, that British society um, is as hopeless as the rest. But needless to say that Tarshish and Sheba and Didan are on a different Uh, or or rather in a separate group of nations to go to the land of Magog, Russia, Europe, uh, Iran, Ethiopia, Sudan, Libya, these other nations, okay? So that's really, really important for us to set the scene of what it is that we're going to be looking at this afternoon. These two major powers. We've seen headlines like this, haven't we? Which are so important. This is um, a year old now, but it's such an extraordinary headline. I wanted to share it with you still. Putin, the new king of Syria. The, the, the Wall Street Journal there might as well have said, Putin is the king of the north, right? Because he sits in the territory which is north of the land of Israel. We've seen just this last week or so, Russia planning a naval base in Sudan. Now, I asked you to keep a marker in Daniel 11. I hope we did that. What's one of the characteristics we know of the king of the north in Daniel 11 and verse 40 that would be significant to us about why Russia is planning a naval base in Sudan? Don't forget, Sudan is part of Kush, 
or Ethiopia of Ezekiel 38. Look at his, looking down 11 and verse 40, what's the detail? I appreciate the fact that you're all muted, but needless to say, I'm sure you're all screaming at the screen with many ships, all right? So we're interested, aren't we, to see these details unfolding before us. Russia's first overseas military base in Sudan, November the 14th this year. The signs are stacking up. We've seen at the beginning of the last month, Russia pledging to continue weapon sales to Iran. We're not surprised. Ezekiel 38 tells us that go the land of Magog will be confederate with Persia or Iran. So can you see what we're seeing in, on the world stage at the moment is these nations working together with military cooperation. We expect, though, to see Russia drop down into Israel. And I'm sure that most of you caught that wonderful graphic on the, on the screen of seeing Russia moving down. Most of you know that I'm famed for my brilliant use of IT. And uh, th there we saw it once again. The word moved. Well done, Pete. So, so, so Russia is going to come down, and we're already seeing, aren't we, Russia sitting. The Wall Street Journal last year, Putin is the new king of Syria. So there, there is Russia sitting in that territory. But something else absolutely critical that we've got to sort of just quickly work out now has got to take place. And for us to do that, we've got to stand back a bit. This might be one again to take a picture of because um, we certainly don't intend to go through it all. But all of us need to appreciate that Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, and Daniel 11 are all building on the very same prophecy. So Daniel 2, most of us, if not all of us, remember well, don't we? The head of gold is Babylon, the chest and the arms of silver, the Medes, then the Persians, the, the belly of thighs, the Greeks, the legs of iron are the Romans, and then we see the feet, part iron and part clay, the sort of divided territory after that, before the stone cut out of the mountain without hands, destroys that image. Now, most of you know well that Daniel 7 just builds on that, don't we? We see the lion with eagle's wings, that correlates the head of gold. We see the bear raised up on its side, that correlates the Medes and the Persians. We see the leopard with four, four uh, heads, that correlates, doesn't it, to the, the Greeks. We see the dreadful and terrible beast, which correlates to Rome. And then in Daniel 8, well, we've moved on in time, and so we're not given an image any longer of Babylon. We move to see the ram, which is the Medes and the Persians, and the he-goat. Um, and then in Daniel 11, we move further in time, and we're told the king of the north and the king of the south. So I think we've got Daniel 11 open. Just quickly go to the beginning of the chapter where we see it starts in the time of the Medes, Darius the Mede, and now Daniel is told by the angel that he'll be shown the truth. Verse 2, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, the fourth shall be far richer than they all, and by his strength through his riches he shall stir up against all the realm of Greece. A mighty king will stand up. Who's the mighty king of Greece? Alexander the Great. Thanks, Ben. I saw you word it. Um, after that, we see, don't we, that his kingdom gets divided towards the four winds of heaven, verse 4. And so we understand, don't we, his four generals take over. And then that map that we had on the screen kept showing us, didn't it, that actually we've got 
um, uh, two dominant territories in the north and in the south. So just because we love pictures, we'll put these things on the screen. These prophecies are all building on one another until we come to Daniel 11 and the king of the north and the king of the south. But why it's of such significant significance for us is because we need to really appreciate a piece of history that unfolds at the time of the Roman Empire. And that is that the, the uh, image that Daniel saw, or the beast that gets seen, Rome splits in two. Now, it's not the king of the north and the king of the south. It's east and west. And those of you who know your history well will know that uh, the western leg of Rome, which had its capital in Rome, stood until the year 476, when the barbarians came in and uh, Odoace, the barbarian, ransacked Rome and he became, uh, he, he took over Rome, okay? The Eastern Empire, which had moved and its capital was not Rome, but was Constantinople, lasted for nearly a thousand more years. It lasted until the year 1453. And in the year 1453, the Eastern Roman Empire fell and Constantinople fell to the Turks. Now, why is this so important? Because Christian Rome, which certainly wasn't Christadelphian Rome, but was Christianized, Christian Rome collapsed at the fall of Constantinople. And a new headquarters for Christian Rome needed to be set up. It could no longer be in Constantinople because the invaders were the Ottoman Turks. And the Ottoman Turks, of course, weren't Christian. They were Muslim. And so Constantinople, the eastern leg of the empire, was now Muslim. It was no longer Christian. And so a new headquarters needed to be found. And we understand that following the fall of Constantinople in the late 1400s, quickly that headquarters was found and they used Moscow, which is why Russians call Moscow the Third Rome. And the Eastern Orthodox Christian Church has its headquarters in Moscow. All right? So, why do Russians call Moscow the Third Rome? This, the, the, the Orthodox monk uh, on the screen there uh, wrote, Two Romes fell, a third stands. There will not be a fourth Rome. And just the detail there on the screen explains to us that the Ottoman Empire collapsed in the year 1453 and a Christian capital for the eastern leg was reset up in Rome, in, in, in apologies, in Moscow, called the Third Rome. And we're not surprised, look, there just on the screen for you, uh, a graphic to highlight to us that the religion in Turkey today, 98% Muslim, and uh, in Russia, over 70% is the Russian Orthodox Church, the Eastern Church, okay? Which is why, of course, Moscow was... Uh, the, the, the place that the Christians set up their headquarters. So 
if you went into the Hagia Sophia, which of course until recently you could do, you would be able to go into that museum as it was, which um, and, and you'd be able to see on, on the wall in that museum that particular uh, picture, that mosaic, which shows the three Romes. Rome, Constantinople, and then the third Rome of Moscow, where the Christian Orthodox Church was able to be set up. And we've seen, haven't we, just this year, that Erdogan, the Turkish president, who we're going to reflect on uh, to some depth in a few minutes, has changed the status of the Hagia Sophia from being what for hundreds of years was a um, Christian church. Then it um, uh, became a, a museum. And he said, no, no longer. We don't want that. We want it to be um, a mosque. So um, uh, the, the, the Ottomans changed it to be a mosque in, when they went into um, Constantinople in 1453. But actually, in the last century, it was changed to be a museum, and he's changed it back. And of course, there's been a great furore all over the world, including in Russia, who aren't happy to see that development take place. So Constantinople. It's just interesting for us to note that... Constantinople, or Istanbul as it's named today, was actually founded on seven hills. So if you look on the, um, the website um, for the city, the tourist website, they'll tell you that it was in fact called Nova Roma, meaning New Rome. So it's not vaguely hidden that when Rome had to move its headquarters, it was actually uh, under Constantine, and he set up his headquarters in Constantinople. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it, that like Rome, it's built on seven hills. It's the new Rome, okay? So we, we've got the, the two legs of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, image that he dreamt, that Daniel explained to him. East and west. The west is in Rome, the east in Constantinople. When the Ottoman Turk came in in 1453, a new Rome had to be found in the east, and Moscow was set up as the new Rome. But the Ottoman Empire, from the time it was formed in 1453, it grew and grew and grew till it hit its sort of peak in the late 1600s. And then it started to shrivel up, or as we read in Revelation 16, it started to dry up. Let's just turn from Daniel to Revelation 16. Because, keep a marker as always, but let's go to Revelation 16, where we read of the, the, the work of the sixth angel, which is of huge importance to us because it's the time of the end. It's the time of the battle of Armageddon in verse 16. But before that battle, verse 12, we read that the great river Euphrates would have to be dried up. And note this, it's to be dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. It's not dried up for any old reason. It's dried up very specifically, we're told, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. We'll look shortly at who we think they are. But that Ottoman power began to dry up. In fact, the First World War saw the, the sort of 
the last parts or some of the last parts, there's still bits to go. I mean, Turkey still stands as a Muslim nation today, but the, the empire that was beyond Turkey dried up really during the First World War. When the, the, the British, who were in the south and set in Egypt, so because they were in the south and south of the land of Israel, the British at the time of the First World War were the king of the south because they were the power occupying the land south of Israel. And you know the stories well, don't you, that General Allenby, um, uh, because of the Balfour Declaration, was able to walk into Jerusalem with a British mandate and the Ottoman Turk was pushed out of Jerusalem, which is why, and you, I need you to go back to Daniel 11, I know you're in Rev 16, but all these passages you see tie together, these end time passages. That's why in Daniel 11 and verse 40, we read that at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him. So who is he pushing at? And many people find themselves thinking, well, the him there must be the king of the north. It's not actually. It's not the king of the north. It's the power that's sitting in the territory at the time of the end. So when did, who did Britain push at? Who is the him in verse 40? They pushed at the Ottoman. And of course, the Ottoman was over all of that Roman territory. We saw the map, didn't we, of the Ottoman Empire, right across Europe, in the Middle East, North Africa. The, 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 the king of the south, which was Britain, at the time of the First World War, pushed at the Ottoman. And so then, this is so important. So look carefully at verse 14. Then it says, the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind. So who is the him? It's the Ottoman. So we understand prophetically that the king of the north, Russia, will come against who? The Ottoman. The Turk, like a whirlwind, with chariots, with horsemen, with many ships, he'll enter into the countries and overflow and pass over. He'll also come into the glorious land. So before he comes into Israel, the king of the north has pushed or has come down into the Ottoman territory. Now, hopefully we've started to understand why that would be the case. He isn't just going into Turkey just because of the fact it's en route to Israel. The king of the north is moving Rome from Moscow back to Constantinople. That the image of Nebuchadnezzar, which has one leg in the west, Rome, and one leg in the east, Constantinople, might be able to stand up. So that's uh, just making the point to us on the screen there that the history tells us that Britain only occupied Egypt from 1882 to 1992, 1922, apologies, for 40 years. Bit of a mistake there, eh? But just for 40 years. And that time, they pushed out the Ottoman, okay, of the land of Israel. Now, this is of real importance to us because Putin has long been identified as a type of Tsar, an autocrat, 
Look what it says on the screen there. The Washington Post tells us, like the SARS, he sometimes shares power. Now, what does SAR sound like? Where's that word come from? The SAR, the Caesar, right? So Putin has, is identified by the world, by historians too, as a character like the Caesars. Trump's disgrace in the Middle East, the death of an empire. Vladimir Putin is Caesar now. This is last year. This also is last year, but I think it's one of the most extraordinary articles I think I've ever read. <laughs> so I'm going to still share it with you. Tyrant he may be, they say, of Putin, but at least he's sane. Now look what the article goes on to tell us, that Putin now plays the role of the latter Roman Empire of the East, the Christian one which survived in Constantinople, Byzantium, Istanbul for hundreds more years after the fall of Rome itself. All the Middle East is now his empire, every capital welcoming the emperor. Take a photograph. That is an amazing news article that lays clear for us that Putin is the latter-day emperor of Rome. Putin the Tsar is more dangerous than ever, January this year. Look what it goes on to say. Vladimir Putin will be the Tsar of all the Russians for another decade and more. The question for the US and its global allies are clear. What does this mean for, Russian grand, for the Russian grand strategy? How can they construct a modus vivendi with Putin and Russia? Look also for Putin to consolidate his recent gains in the Middle East. With the advantage of length and timeline, he'll probably approach Iran with an offer to help mediate its feud to the West on terms that will be helpful to Russia in terms of oil flows. This is just this week. Russia moves to protect Putin from prosecution. I'm sure lots of you saw it in the news just this week. Look what some of the commentators say. The new bill is to make Putin the Tsar for life. This man is like the Caesar. This is the one, if the Lord Jesus comes soon, who is the king of the north, that's going to come down and take Constantinople, which is why it's so interesting to us to see articles like this over the last few months. This is the beginning of last month. Turkey challenging Russia's monopoly in the South Caucasus. In the South Caucasus. This is so important because... What we're witnessing is this tension between Turkey and Russia. Turkey jumps into another foreign conflict, this time in the Caucasus. How Erdogan is testing his bond with Putin or his patience in the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict. Regional war brews between Turkey and Russia. This is all in the last two months. Why uh, Erdogan's love affair with the Ottoman Empire should worry the world. This is the Time magazine, the last two months. Return of the Empire in August this year. Why Erdogan wants to resurrect the Ottoman state. Turkey's unfinished war with the West. By sea and land, Turkey raises tensions with Europe. Provocations in the Eastern Mediterranean and insults of the French president draw warnings from Brussels. So let's try to see if the big picture here. We're watching, aren't we, at the moment, 
tension between Turkey and Russia because of the situation in Armenia and Azerbaijan, where you've got a Muslim nation and a Christian nation at war, and Russia supports the Christian nation, but uh, Turkey, we've seen is 98% Muslim, strongly supports Azerbaijan, the Muslim nation, we're seeing conflict. But we're also, this article is telling us, is see, seeing tension between Turkey and Europe. Europe must wake up to Erdogan's neo-Ottoman ambition the 10th of October this year, how Erdogan and Putin spectacularly fell out. The article tells us about the souring of relationships between Ankara, which is obviously where uh, Erdogan is in Turkey, and Moscow. Erdogan's Ottoman dreams will fall foul of Putin. The 7th of October this year, the Financial Times reports. So let me just go back there and see if we can just recap again at what we're seeing. We're watching as Turkey is making enemies of both Europe and Russia, which is so important because Ezekiel 38 tells us that with Gog of the land of Magog would be Goma right? And Goma, we saw on the map, is France, is northern uh, Europe there, France moving into Germany. So we're interested in this relationship between France and Russia, on Europe and Russia, and we know from Daniel 11 verse 40 that the king of the north, who we understand to be Gog of the land of Magog, who's going to be confederate with Europe, is going to come down First, into Turkey. The king of the south will push at him. That was the Ottoman. And the king of the north shall come against him. That is Turkey. Like a whirlwind with chariots, with horsemen, with many ships, before he comes down into Israel. So now we're interested to see what else are we seeing which is uniting the East and the West? And we've seen over the last couple of years, on a religious level, meetings between Putin and the Pope. In other words, meetings between the Eastern Orthodox Church, whose leg, as it were, is in Moscow, which was once in Constantinople, and Rome. And the image has got to stand up. Russian President Putin meets Pope Francis for a third time, the summer before last. Pope Francis is quietly paving the way to unity. Could the reunion between Catholics and Orthodox be closer than we thought? Are we beginning to see the time when the East and the West, no one can stand up, can they, or most of us can't, on one leg? For that image that Nebuchadnezzar dreamt to stand on its feet, which is what it's doing at the latter days when the stone cut out of the mountain without hands comes crashing into it. East and West have got to communicate. They've got to work together for the image to stand up. And that's what we're watching. We're seeing now, not only is Russia the king of the north there, but Goma 
he's going to need to join Russia to come down through Turkey onto the mountains of Israel. So what else have we seen? Well, I'm sure all of you saw that we, towards the end of last month, beginning of the end of last month, the uh, terrible atrocity where a French teacher was beheaded because of the fact that he, um, uh, despite repeated warnings by um, Muslims that he should stop um, uh, uh, trying to um, justify the drawings of um, Muhammad, uh, who of course is sacred as the prophet um, in the um, Islamic religion, he was saying that in France this is fine, and of course the, the, the French Republic is based on the fact that freedom of speech is essential to who they are. So he's telling his students it's fine, and uh, he was murdered for it. So we then watched Macron standing up for the French Republic, saying, um, of course, that this, this was fine, that, um, that the teacher was a hero, that he was only teaching the values of what France stands for. But of course, it caused an international outcry. Macron hails murdered quiet hero. But the result of that is that tensions over Islam's place in French society have begun to escalate. Macron's clash with Islam sends jolt through France's long debate about secularism. Now, I want you to look at the screen there carefully. This um, is from an article in The Guardian uh, just last month. But look on the screen there. Macron is stood behind a poster with which three words on it? Liberty, equality, and fraternity. The values of the French Republic. Now, we haven't got the time to, to go into the detail of this this afternoon, but most of you will know well that those values are the frog-like spirits of Revelation 16. So in Revelation 16, we read, didn't we, if you want to just quickly go and have a look again, we read of the drying up of the river Euphrates, that's the drying up of the Ottoman Empire, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. But we also would have gone on to read verse 13 of three unclean spirits like frogs that would come out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. The dragon is the eastern leg, the beast is the western leg of Rome, um, and the false prophet, of course, is the papacy. And the frog-like spirits are the spirits of the French Revolution, of liberty, equality, and fraternity, which has created the Western world, created the world that we now know it. And those values are now causing serious conflict in Europe because the likes of Macron want to hold on to those values. And yet there are millions of Muslims who live in France who would profoundly disagree that those values could allow someone to draw cartoons of Muhammad, their prophet. So we live in the times when we're seeing the frog-like spirits driving the nations into particular groups. Macron and Putin held talks just last month after the French teacher's killing. See, Macron 
goes to Putin because actually the person who committed um, the murder was originally from Russia. But of course, Putin is the head in Moscow. He's the seize there. He's the head, if you like, of the Eastern Orthodox. He's not actually the head. There's an Eastern Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox uh, priest that's the head of the church. But as the head of state, that's what he stands for. And Macron goes to him. And so East and West are talking. Erdogan, though, tilts at Macron as France mourns victims of terror. New wave of Islamic extremism adds to Putin's troubles. And then there was another attack, this time not in France, in Austria, in Vienna. We share Austria's shock grief, says the French president, Emmanuel Macron, on Vienna terror attack. Vienna terror attack. Europe will not give in to its enemies, the Times reports, says a defiant Macron. Anti-Muslim rhetoric rises after the Vienna attack. What does Erdogan, though, do in Turkey? The Turkish president has called on Turks to boycott French goods in a televised speech as Muslim countries condemn Macron's defence of Prophet Muhammad caricatures and large-scale demonstrations. So there's a huge backlash against Macron and France by, led by Erdogan and other Muslim nations because of what he's saying, which is that Europe has to stand up for the values of liberty, equality and fraternity and not allow Islamic terrorists to uh, do what they're doing. But of course, Erdogan says he's not just saying this about terrorists, he's saying this about Muslims. Macron then and the uh, head of state for Austria, Kurtz, um, flex their anti-terror muscles for a domestic audience. I just want you to note this. Brother Thomas wrote this in 1867 in Eureka. Um, I, it's impossible for us to go into the detail here, but I just thought it's of real interest to us. There's only one place, he says, in the apocalypse where frogs are introduced. So here we are in Revelation 16. They're introduced here by way of illustrating the character of the spirits that in the period of the sixth vial would issue up forth from the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, governments to all the rulers of the earth and habitable, and in a parallel series with the series of events by which the power of the Euphrates Ottoman Empire is drying up. So what he's saying is, as the Turkish powers dried up, which of course we've seen it, that it dried up right up to the First World War, when just Turkey's left, but there's still a final drying up, when the dragon power of Russia will drop down into Constantinople. He says at the same time, a parallel series of events, you've got the frog-like spirits that are going out. And he, of course, he, he tells us in Eureka that the frog-like spirits we can see are the French democracy, um, the liberty, equality, and fraternity, the, the characteristics that came out of the French Revolution. But look what he says. He says, the French imperial policy is the moving and formative spirit of the situation. And when brought to bear upon Constantinople, Vienna and Rome. And of course, when Brother Thomas is writing this, Vienna is of such huge importance because of the fact that it was the capital of the Holy Roman Empire for many years before it became the capital of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So Vienna is actually, <laughs> of all places, how interesting that we've seen this last month 
that that Vienna in Austria, which many people across the world have completely forgotten was once the capital of the Holy Roman Empire, or even the capital of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Yet this place Brother Thomas writes about, where we'll see the import of the unclean spirits, the frog-like spirits going out and gathering the nations, Revelation 16 tells us, for Armageddon. So Francis Macron this week has issued Republican values, the values of liberty, equality and fraternity, ultimatum to Muslim leaders. He's saying you've got to understand that, that Islam is not a political movement. It's a religious movement. Uh, it, it's, it's a religion. And if you want to be in France, he's saying that's what you've got to accept. But it's going to be interesting for us to watch to see how that goes on. You can see the picture on the screen there um, of um, Muslims somewhere in the world holding up the banner, Boycott France. France, of course, insists it's targeting Islamist extremism, extremism, but some foreign observers and French Muslims, the Washington Post tells us, see a broader agenda. The EU officials hit out at Ankara, that's the capital of Turkey, after Erdogan attacks Macron. So what are we seeing? We're seeing that now Europe is now siding with Macron, of course, and is hitting out at Erdogan and Turkey because of the position that Erdogan has taken. Erdogan whips up Muslim hate against Macron. Erdogan's attack on Macron exposes a minefield between Europe and Turkey. And so we're going to finish for a break here, just looking carefully at this slide, where Brother Thomas, writing in Elpis Israel, said the future movements of Russia are notable signs of the times. Young people, we are living in the most extraordinary times. Russia is sitting in the King of the North Territory. The newspapers across the world have told us that in the last couple of years. Think of that article from the Wall Street Journal October 2019. Putin is the new king of Syria. He's in the king of the North Territory. It's a notable sign of the times. But we go on to read that the Russian autocracy in its plenitude and on the verge of its dissolution is the image of Nebuchadnezzar standing upon the mountains of Israel ready to be smitten by the stone. When Russia makes its grand move for the building up of its image empire, in other words, when it drops down into Constantinople, then let the reader know that the end of all things, as at present constituted, is at hand. Just let's finish with this. Brother Thomas again, writing in Eureka. Don't forget he's writing in 1867 writes this, the gathering together of the national armies against Jerusalem, so in other words, this is the Gogian confederacy he's talking about, is after the appearance of Christ in the south. That's in Timon, where he begins his career as the king of the south. So the Lord Jesus Christ will be the last king of the south. And before he appears on Mount Zion, hence, we have not to wait. This is the important thing for me and you. We've not to wait the advance of the Russian Gog against Constantinople and his overflowing Passover and stretching forth of his power over Egypt and the Holy Land. This will certainly come to pass, he says, but it will all be consequent upon, not before 
the appearing of Christ in Timon. The great Euphratian Ottoman power is not dried up to prepare the way of the greater power of Gog, but that the way of the kings out of the sun's rising might be prepared. What Brother Thomas is saying there is this. The Euphratian power of Turkey is not being dried up so that Russia can sweep down through Turkey, on into Israel, down into the Sinai Peninsula, into Egypt, as Daniel 11 tells us that Russia will do. He says, no, that's not the case. He says, before that happens, the Lord Jesus Christ will have come back. He says that the drying up, Revelation 16 tells us, of the Ottoman power is not so that Go can sweep down. Rather, it's Revelation 16 verse 12, that the way of the kings of the east or the sun's rising might be prepared. Young people, that's us. That's me and you. We are going to be, we pray, with the saints who come out of the east to save the tents of Judah, who were in great distress because of the king of the north. The, the drying up of the Ottoman power is so that there aren't nations in the Sinai Peninsula that when the Lord comes, the resurrection, the judgment can take place without having Gog or any other power sitting in that place. And so there's a warning for me and you. Whatever we do, don't wait to make a decision on the truth of the scripture and whether we commit our lives to it. Thinking, well, I tell you what, if I actually ever see Russia come down into Constantinople, well, if I see that, then I'll be baptized. Then I'll commit to these things. From Brother Thomas's estimation, that would be too late. So the challenge for us is to see the signs of the times now and to order our lives so that we're prepared that we might be with the kings of the sun's rising when the Lord Jesus Christ returns.